this week as we're looking forward to spending our time with you today. We ask that you give us discernment, that you help us just to really understand the scope of your word, to understand the general principles being applied, and more specifically as it pertains to the rapture, that you would help us to utilize what we've learned um, in summation form, just so we can uh, walk away with something that we could use for the specific purpose of apologetics as it pertains to the rapture. We ask that you be with all of us this afternoon as we're trying to honor you with the words we say and the things we do. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So given how many weeks this study has been so far, I think it's appropriate to spend a day going over what we actually believe. Because it can get pretty easy to get lost in the weeds, to kind of forget, like, it's often analogized to looking so closely at the veins of a leaf that you forget what the forest looks like. We, and I think that's kind of where we're at. I mean, we spent weeks and weeks and weeks talking about imminence, talking about imminency, arguing for why we believe it's biblical and measuring the opposing arguments against what we found in the Bible. But I think today we'll go a much more simple route and we will just talk about what is the rapture of the church. Biblically, what is it? Can we defend it from a biblical standpoint? Not having a bunch of slides right in front of us to go to the scripture verses, not having to go through any of the uh, the gymnastics that we would need to in order to really make a biblical argument. Can we do it with just our Bible? That's really the question that we ought to be asking ourselves. And I would hope that, I was actually waiting because on my phone, whenever we start the lesson, I get the number of how many we've done. So this is the 65th lesson we've done on the rapture of the church. At this point, I think we should be able to defend the basic biblical um, rapture of the church. And so that's what we're going to try to accomplish today. Now, the three main places you're going to go to in the New Testament to defend the... And you, if you haven't, not saying that you do weekend warrior theological debates, but occasionally... Somebody might say, well, I don't believe there's going to be a rapture of the church. Okay, well, that's fine. You can believe whatever you want. But they might ask why you believe it. Now, we could get into a philosophical uh, conversation based upon biblical truth, or we could just take them to the Word. So the three main places we go to are the letters to the Thessalonians, we go to 1 Corinthians, and we go to the book of John. So we're going to go into all three of these very briefly just to remind ourselves of the context of these books and then apply the portions that are relating to the rapture. So the first place, and before we even look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, I just want to make something very clear. If you read Matthew uh, chapter 16, verses eight, verse 18 in particular, Jesus talking to his disciples, um, specifically to Peter, but also more general towards the apostles, in the early days, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Well, what was the rock that he was talking about? Well, if you, if you uh, look at the idea of a rock, and you take it through his ministry, as well as the Old Testament, you'll realize that God was known as the rock. And so when Jesus is talking about this rock that he's going to build his church on, he's, he's really talking about himself. So, as it loosely pertains to the context, Jesus or Peter's testimony about the rock is what Jesus is talking about specifically. 
on this rock, this rock, this testimony that he, Jesus, is the Christ is what he's going to build the church on. But the thing that we're trying to per, or point out today is this idea of the future tense. I will build my church because what was the church? Did it exist when this was being said? No, it absolutely did not exist. Um, that would make what Jesus was saying quite silly. And Jesus isn't known for that. Typically, Jesus isn't known for being silly. So where we're going to turn today is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, bearing in mind this idea that the church is something that hasn't always existed. That the church age, which is how we like to word it, um, which is kind of from a transitory perspective, looking at the beginning of the book of Acts, moving their way as the church started getting from its stage of infancy to a state of maturity. Now, arguments can be made about how mature it really was, but the maturity is more relating to the foundation of the church. When we talk about the maturity of the early church, what we're really talking about is, did they have enough revelation that they were able to discern truth from error and to walk according to the precepts that the apostles gave them through Jesus? So, 1 Thessalonians 14, or 4, 13 through 18. What is the context of this? Let's go through this. We're going to do it kind of rather quickly. Um, but I still think this is going to be pretty important. So what was Paul doing? What was he trying to accomplish for, through the letter to the Thessalonians? So remember, the Thessalonians were a very early church, or I should say a young church. This first letter was probably written within six months of the Thessalonian church actually coming into existence. So this is a very early church. He put them through what I would consider to be a very good biblical boot camp. He taught them about salvation. He talked to them about the eternity, and he talked to them about the coming of the Lord to the point where it was such a prominent subject that every chapter of this book ends with a reference to the coming of the Lord. So what, what is he doing here? What is their question that they're asking that he's trying to preemptively answer? Well, he's trying to answer what happens to those who die in Christ. So we'll start in verse 13 and we'll read our way through and then we'll look at them a little bit more closely. It says in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed brethren about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in, in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Bear in mind that in Christ verse, we're going to revisit that in a second. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So a couple things about that first. When he talks about uninformed, that's that word that we looked at which is agnosis, which is this idea of without knowledge. He doesn't want them to be without specific knowledge pertaining to those who have fallen asleep, which both shows us that they didn't know what happened to those who fell asleep, or more likely they probably didn't pay attention. They had a lot of information given to them. Um, and I don't know that they took notes. They may have, but speculation. So again, this idea of not grieving as do those who have no hope. If you've ever been to a wedding for someone who didn't have the hope of a final resurrection, who didn't have the hope of life after death, it's, it's terrible. It's an awful experience. 
because you're trying to comfort people who, who have no hope. They have, there is no hope. They know they're, from their perspective, they know they're not going to see their loved one again. They, they have absolutely no anticipation. There's no joy. Um, not so most Christian weddings, if they're t- done properly, because we know that we're going to have this reunion in the future. Um, just keep, bear that in mind, because it really pertains to the context that we're going to look at here in 1 Corinthians. So this idea of those asleep, again, that's just a euphemism for death, for those who have died. Um, what do we learn? We learn that those who are alive and remain are going to be caught up. This is that Greek word, which is herpazo, which basically, um, basically means that they're going to be taken up to Jesus. It's like, it's where we get the English word harpoon, where you stab something and you draw it to yourself. Um, and so what this is really promising is that Jesus is going to take up not just those Christians who are alive and remain, as Paul hopes to be, as we looked at the general context, but also those who are asleep. And what's more is that those who are asleep will actually rise first. So there's an actual order to events here. And what's more is they don't just rise. This isn't just any resurrection. The promise that's given here is that all of these people are actually going to be caught up to be with the Lord. And then what does it say? There's a purpose here. What's the purpose? The purpose is so we shall always be with the Lord. So that's the promise. And that knowledge that, and again, we're going to look at those in Christ in a second. This idea of being caught up to always be with the Lord. That is why this is a comfort. That's why verse 18 says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So again, if you're undergoing a ton of persecution as in Thessalonica, as the Thessalonian church, and you've clearly had church members die, probably due to persecution, that's the main assumption made by commentators, then this will be a natural question. Paul, you told us about this rapture. What's going to happen to those of us who are asleep? That's the answer. The answer is that, yeah, they're dead, but they're actually going to do better than you are because they are going to rise first, and then you are going to be caught up to be with the Lord. This is a comfort to you. That should comfort you through your trials and through your tribulations. Let's go to John chapter 14. I told you we're going to go through these pretty fast. Yeah, it's so... As an electrician, my licensure is based upon the idea that I, as a qualified worker, am able to quickly navigate a code book to find an answer. It has nothing to do with whether or not I know an answer off the top of my head. I don't need to know how to size a 2,000 amp service or what conductors to go to it. But what I do, what I am qualified to do, is that I know exactly how to get to that information. You don't have to memorize every single one of these verses. Well, what we do need to do is we need to be able to know exactly where to go in order to defend this particular scripture. So that's more of what we're trying to accomplish here is we're trying to make it, I mean, as far as we can go with this boot camp to be able to actually defend what we believe the Bible teaches on the subject, only because it is such, 
it is surprisingly focused and surprisingly emphasized in the New Testament, the amount of information that pertains to the coming of the Lord and daily living. It says in John 14, we'll read that starting in verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus talking, this is the upper room discourse. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. So again, church didn't exist right now. And some, some people in dispensationalism mess this up a little bit. Um, I, I actually, surprisingly enough, I like the way Douglas, not Douglas Moo, uh, Robert Gundry, who's a post-tribulationalist, actually refers to this. He refers to the church as if it's an embryo at this point. Like the church is, hasn't been born yet, but it's so very close to it that um, what Jesus is doing is he's training them and giving them revelation that they're not even going to understand until after they get the Holy Spirit, after Jesus ascends to the Father. Um, and he starts actually guiding them into what he refers to as all truth. So that being said, this section of the book of John, the Gospel of John, verse, or chapters 13 through 17, is referring to the upper room discourse. Um, what's the difference between the upper room discourse and the Olivet Discourse? One's in the upper room, one's on the Mount of Olives, okay? So don't say you didn't learn anything. <laughs> so so in, any, in any case, um, what Jesus is promising through this section is the things, and you can look at it kind of on a punch list going all the way down. I think we had a slide within the last uh, couple months where we went through all of them. Well, we didn't go through all of them. We summarized them because there's so many church-age truth that he gives here that would have been absolute mysteries to the apostles as members of the nation of Israel. In verse 1, he talks about a few different things. So he's talking about not letting their hearts be troubled, but he's also referring to the Father and to himself as a validation for that. Um, And this idea of trust is the same word, pistuo. This is where we get the idea of faith. Um, But... What's more is he's not just telling them to trust him. He's also about to give them a very good reason to do so. Um, Now, this idea of a place gets really messed up in the NKJV and the KJV because it actually is written mansions. So if you're into Keith Green, you'll listen to songs about mansions in the sky. Um, The word for mansion, and this actually factors into our idea for pre-tribulationalism, is actually a translation of a word that actually refers to a temporary dwelling place, usually used for Roman soldiers who were traveling. They would make a temporary dwelling place um, on their way to their destination. So what Jesus is promising here is, in my Father's house are many, you can insert this based upon the Greek, temporary dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And so this idea of permanency that we get in the English as we're looking at that isn't actually evident in the Greek. This idea that he's making a, like a home for us in heaven for 70 trillion years isn't actually conspicuous in the Greek. It's actually more on a temporary basis, which is really interesting because that wouldn't have been something the apostles were really in, like, in tune with either. 
So this would have been, again, revelation for them. Um, that being said, what is he actually promising? He's promising that after he makes these temporary dwelling places, that he's going to do what? He's going to come again and receive us to himself. Now, this is so important because I've actually, uh, I forget his name. He had a doctorate in New Testament studies. And he, the way he described this is Jesus is saying, trust me, I go to the Father's house to create dwelling places for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm actually going to come again, receive you to myself. And then what they say is it stops there. It talks about how he's just promising to receive you to himself. And because he's actually coming back to the earth at the end of the tribulational period, that's where you're going to be. So the way that they look at that, again, um, they, try, they almost separate this idea of him making the father, these dwelling places, um, but they never answer the question about why is he building dwelling pl- temporary dwelling places in heaven because this is heaven, because where are we, what are we talking about? We're talking about the Father's house. And so they, they'll acknowledge that Jesus is doing these things, but they'll find another meaning for this idea of tw- dwelling places. And again, we're, what did we learn when we were looking at how to interpret Scripture? Take it at face value unless it's conspicuous to do otherwise, really. And what's more is that if you wrote specific words on a page in a specific order and use the rules of grammar, then we would also use the rules of grammar when we're reading. It's very simple. So that being said, um, this has nothing to do with eternal life. This is talking about something very differently. And between First Thessalonians, we looked at this last week in the book of John, we have a lot of similarities, almost exact parallels between these two scriptures. So what Jesus is promising is that he's going to go to the Father's house, create a place for us, come back, receive us to himself, and then we will always be with the Lord. You know what? If we're going to be with the Lord for seven years during the tribulational period, and then eventually come back with him, rewarded, as his church in Revelation 19, I'd say we're still with the Lord even in the midst of that. So again, we're just trying to take the normal meaning of this verse. Now, if you can turn to 1 Corinthians, that's where we're going to uh, look at next. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What is chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians about? This is known as the resurrection chapter of the Bible. Now, there are a few things that should be noted here. We're going to actually start at verse 50 and make our way to verse 54. So it says, starting in verse 50, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And when the perishable have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? So that's the basis for what we're looking at today. So what what were the uh, Corinthians struggling with in Corinth? Well, they were struggling with a type of Gnosticism, if we're trying to remember, um, known as dualism. We're going to look at that in a quick second. Um, but, beca- oh, we'll talk about it now. So with 
uh, Gnosticism, it goes off of this basic idea that the physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good. So this idea that Jesus would have forsaken his mortal body and gone up to be in heaven, that's something they were okay with. What they were not okay with was this idea that he would get a physical body again and come back to the earth. That didn't make any sense to them because it con uh, conflicted with this idea of Gnosticism. Um, so what were they putting into question? They were saying, well, I mean, that's nice, this idea that Jesus rose from the dead, um, but we don't think he rose into a resurrected physical body. We think it was a spiritual body. And so that's really what the Corinthians were arguing against. That's what they were struggling with. And that specifically is what Paul is interacting with. We actually see that as early as verse 20 in the same chapter, if you want to read that on your own time. Um, but that being said, if they believed in this idea of dualism, then that creates a problem because what is the entire entirety of Christianity based upon? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if he didn't resurrect... Okay, well, you're, you're a very quick stepping stone away from not believing in him at all. So, again, this was a pretty serious subject, and Paul talked about it in kind. So that being said, verse 50, why do we need new bodies? Well, because we're going to a heavenly dwelling place. Why would we need new bodies for that? Well, because this is a sin-soaked body that isn't fit for heaven. Um, because as of right now, I'm not fit to be in the presence of the Lord. And judging from Revelation 4 and 5, what, where were the Christians? Again, we, we haven't argued for that yet, but Kurt, Kurt made that reference when he was going through those chapters. Christians are in heaven in the throne room of God. So that being said, you can't be in the presence of God in a sin-soaked body. I mean, Moses could hardly stand. He couldn't, actually. He couldn't stand. So that's kind of the point that I'm getting at is that you need a heavenly body to be in the holiness and presence of the Lord. And so what is actually promised here? He's promising that not only did Jesus rise again into a, into a resurrected body, as, and we can read that in verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been raised as what? The first fruits of those who are asleep. Oh, these people who are asleep again, why are we talking about them again? Because this is something that everybody wondered about. What happens to Christians who are asleep? Well, what we're hearing is that Christ, since he rose from the dead, he is, it's similar to uh, Ephesians chapter one, where it says that the Holy Spirit was given to us as a pledge of our inheritance. It's likewise, the, on the same token, Christ's resurrection guarantees ours. That first fruit guarantees the future harvest. And so when we're looking at this, and we'll keep reading here, it says, for since by a man came death, by a man came what? Resurrection from the dead. This isn't spiritualized to be talking about eternal life. That's not in the context. It says in 22, for as, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Okay, so that's the basic gist of what we're looking at. That's the context that verses 50 through 54 are brought into. So that being said, this idea that we can't inherit the kingdom of heaven with our bodies is absolutely the case. Now, we'll look into that a little bit later um, because it's not specifically just talking about entering the kingdom because what happens when, 
are there going to be mortals entering the kingdom? Yeah, there have to be. Otherwise, the promises given in the Davidic covenant can't actually come into play. So this isn't talking about, again, kingdom doesn't mean the same thing every, everywhere it's used. Okay? The messianic kingdom is different from God's universal kingdom, which is ruled from heaven. That's where his sovereignty is dished out. So that being said, this is known as a mystery. We looked at that. That's a truth that is just now being revealed. That's always been true. That is just now being revealed to his church. And so what are we learning here? Well, if you look at the word for in a moment, you get this Greek word for atmos, which is this idea of an uh, indivisible particle of time. So all of this, this entire resurrection, which we look at all the events in 1 Thessalonians and John, all happens in a moment. And what happens? The trumpet sounds. We know from 1 Thessalonians that the dead in Christ rise first. And then we keep moving on. And what's really significant about this and what has been really inspiring to me as I've been studying this over the past year is this idea of a reunion, because that's really what a resurrection is. Because we talk about the body of Christ um, being taking part in this rapture. But what we're really looking at is every, if you think of the church as a body, which is how we ought to think of it, as a body from all ages, starting Acts chapter 2 up until the moment of the rapture, every single member of the church for the first time in history will be in the same place at the exact same time going to be with the Lord. So when we talk about the rapture, that's incredibly significant. It's going to be yeah, it's going to be incredible, um, especially since we have very temporary bodies. Um, I think it was Dennis Roxer who said the shortest amount of time in your entire existence is that little blip of time you're on the earth in your mortal body. Um, that's just your testing phase to determine like what the rest of your eternity is going to be. Um, like, yeah, because each of us is responsible not just for where we go to eternity in terms of heaven and hell, but also the level of authority we'll have in the coming kingdom, the level of responsibility, um, which to God be the glory if we're able to do that. So that being said, when we look at these things, we have to keep in mind this is our future. Again, if, we, if you're going through trials, if you're going through persecution, if you're getting burnt on the stake, whatever the case may be, just saying that you're going to have a future with the Lord is enough. But more specifically, the New Testament, although it's mistaught in a lot of Christianity right now, is very specific in saying that not only does it have an impact, but it has a significant impact. Okay? So, um, yeah. So when we're looking at this idea of a resurrection, we're promised glorification. We're promised heavenly bodies. Um, so that's really what we're talking about. And not only this, it has to happen. That's why it says the mortal must put on immortality. Um, so that's the basic gist of this idea between 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, and uh, the book of John, because it really gives us the foundation for what we believe about the rapture, what we believe it's going to happen. First, uh, 1 Corinthians tells us this mystery um, that this is going to happen in a moment that we're going to get changed and transformed into heavenly bodies. Uh, First Thessalonians talks about kind of the order of events. It's probably the most descriptive uh, portion of that, where it talks about how we and those dead in Christ are all going to 
to go up to be with the Lord in a moment. And then in the book of John, in the gospel of John, we get this idea that not only is this all happening, not only are we being caught up to the Lord, but we're being caught up to the Lord to go to the Father's house. So we get this, I would say, an exceptionally descriptive uh, version of what we believe to be the rapture of the church. So the question then becomes, when will this take place? So I made this very quick bullet point uh, logical presentation to show you when I think it's going to take place. So the first thing that we always need to talk about, no matter who we're talking to, you're not going to remember every description of the uh, in Deuteronomy and Zechariah and all of these other books pertaining to the second coming. It's, we all know it's in Revelation 19. That's a good place to go. But what's more specific is that the rapture is not the same thing as the second coming. Um, and what's more, let's just say this. Um, does the Bible have to say something more than once to be true in every respect in which it was talking about that subject? No. Let's just say Matthew 24. It's a description of what's the signs preceding the second coming. Uh, Matthew 24 verses 1, I believe, talks about where he's answering the question the apostles had pertaining to the coming of the Lord. So we already have a description of the second coming. Next, um, we spent several weeks on this looking at the second coming and the rapture. And what did we come to the conclusion of? We came to the conclusion that the second coming is completely and utterly distinct from the rapture. And so a couple general off-the-cup examples. The second coming pertains to what? His gathering of the elect. We looked at the version of elect in the Old Testament. We came to the conclusion that he's talking about Israel. The church is concerning who? 1 Thessalonians 13 through 8, 4, 13 through 18. Those in Christ. We spent time in the New Testament to show that that is a technical term for those who are in where? In the church. Uh, what's more is what's Jesus coming to do? He's coming to wage war. What is the promise in 1 Thessalonians and John and uh, 1 Corinthians? That he's coming to take the church. Now, there are other reasons in the midst of that, like a resurrection. Um, the fact that the dead in Christ are rising first. And the fact that we're changing into resurrected bodies in that moment, in that very short amount of time. But the general principle is that it's concerning two different types of people. Or two different uh, people of God. In any case, they're very different. We spent weeks on that, if you want to go back to that lesson. Now, because we believe they are distinct events, we treat them as such. Now, what did he promise in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3? He promised that we would be going to the heavenly dwelling places that he created for us, these temporary dwelling places as we looked at the Greek. Um, but in order to do that, he promises to receive us to himself. He promised what in 1 Thessalonians? That this is concerning those in Christ. Again, a technical term relating to the church, the body of Christ. Now, what else do we know about this? We know that there are no signs, and we spent weeks on this, um, which the New Testament says has, and this is the most important part, has to take place before the coming of the Lord, um, which is, Again, this is where this factors into our first point. Because all if the rapture and the second coming were the exact same event, 
then he wouldn't need to make a reference to signs in any of those verses that we looked at. But what we notice is that we don't believe they are the same event because we believe they're completely separable, that you can't combine them in any sense of the meaning. Um, or if you do think that, then they're completely uh, described differently, the different purposes concerning different people, concerning different time periods, concerning, I mean, you could, we have a very long list. Um, so when we're talking about it, since we believe that it's a distinct event, um, we understand that there are no signs that have to take place before it happens because none are listed. Now, I, I have it written that we've been given a not to exceed clause in our promises relating to the Lord. That's what we're going to look at really quickly right now. Um, because not only are we not given any signs that would pertain to the coming of the Lord that we have to look out for before he comes for the rapture, but we have actually been given a cutoff point. So let's start in the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians, not exclamation point Thessalonians. That was a typo. It's amateur hour up here. Gosh. Yeah, it's, it's really excited about 1 Thessalonians is what, really what it was. I just couldn't contain myself. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to start on verse 9. Um, again, what was the context of the initial part of 1 Thessalonians? We're talking about a very new church in a state of infancy. And Paul was congratulating them because of their reputation that preceded them. He didn't have to call and ask them how they were. He knew based upon the reputation that they were on fire for the Lord, that they were doing the things that he had been taught, teaching them. Um, and he even said that in verse 16, that you have become imitators of us and of the Lord, most importantly. Having received the word in much tribulation and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So that's the basic uh, context that's leading into our verse. But what's more is it says in verse 9, for they themselves, this report that's sounding about them in particular report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned from God, turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And what? And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the get dead, that is Jesus, who does what? Who rescues us from the wrath to come. Verse, verse 10. We'll move a little bit farther in the book to chapter 5. Having just given us that description of the rapture in verses 13 through 18, he says, starting in verse 1, we're going to read up to verse 11. It says, Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just as a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. What's he talking about? Is he talking about the rapture? Or is he talking about the second coming? He's talking about the second coming. Uh, specifically, this idea, this motif of a thief in the night that he's talking about, that's pertaining to the second coming. Um, more specifically, what did we learn when we were going through Revelation chapter 6? When we were looking at the seal judgments? We learned that there's going to be a false fake or pseudo peace that takes upon the entire world where this person that we're going to read about later is leading people astray and that destruction will come quite suddenly. 
economic destruction, physical destruction, people are going to die. All these things are going to kind of avalanche their way in. It's going to snowball very quickly. Um, It says in verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in the darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. Well, as you look at Matthew 24 and you compare it with the description in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you come to this idea that when it talks about Jesus is coming like a thief in the night and no one will know when he comes, it's not pertaining to everyone not knowing when he comes. Because if you were to take a time clock and you were to start it at the beginning point in the tribulational period, you'd know, based upon biblical prophecy, Daniel 9, 27 through 29, that there's going to be exactly how many years? Exactly seven years. And again, if you want to know why it's exactly seven years, we know that mathematically, starting in 444 BC, going up to the point where Jesus rode in on Jerusalem, that it was exactly 483 years. Uh, Harold Honer, in, I forget the name of his book, um, he's a biblical chronologist. I actually have it on my bookshelf went from that moment in history and worked his way up to show that it was, I forget, like 8 o'clock on this specific day when he came in on Jerusalem. And he was able to prove that, not just showing math, but also showing history. That historically and verifiably happened in history. So we know that there was a mathematical precision associated with the first 63 weeks, okay, or 483 years, uh, because a week, a Jewish week, as it pertained to the book of Jeremiah and the book of Daniel, is a seven-year period. It's, a, it's how, similar in uh, English to how I would word a dozen. Like a dozen, we know it's 12. Well, a week was a seventh or a quantity of seven. So there was mathematical precision associated with that. So we know that that same precision would carry to the last week because we're not going to change, God's not going to change his method midstream just because we want to make up fanciful ideas about what the tribulation is going to be like. So all of that being said, it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he's talking about their awareness of what's happening. He says in verse 4 again, But you, brethren, are not in the darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, because we're not of darkness, because we're of the day, not the night. So then, verse 6, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, uh, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is it absolute, or I'm sorry, we'll read verse nine or verse 10, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. Well, that's really interesting because he actually words, because who's he talking to right here? He's talking to Christians, okay? He's not worried about their eternal salvation. So even though if you were to say God has not destined us for eternal wrath of hell as Christians because we are blood-bought saints, that would be absolutely true too. But that's not what he's talking about. The context is actually talking about the day of the Lord. Um, what's more is that he's actually making two different categories of people that are both Christians. Those who are awake and those who are asleep. Those who are alert, looking for the signs of the times, and those who are not. But the most important part is that God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord 
Jesus Christ. And we'll finish with Revelation chapter 3. That's where we will end today. So if you could turn to uh, chapter 3, we'll, we'll look at the message to Philadelphia. So again, the basic, and I'm going to summarize this very quickly. In every one of these letters to the seven churches, he had a basic structure, Jesus did, as he was writing these letters that uh, pretty much with a few exceptions followed for every letter. He would essentially initiate his conversation with the church by uh, addressing the church, talking about something decent about them. Then he would talk about an area in which they needed fixing, an area in which they could grow. And then what's more is having encouraged them to grow and warn them about what would happen if they didn't, he then gave them an encouragement by telling them something that was true about them in an eternal sense. And we see that pretty much carried away from all of these churches. Uh, we'll read the entirety of the letter. It says, because it's verse 7 to 13, it's not that long. So it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds, behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have did not, not denied my name. Um, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I also will keep that hour... I'm sorry, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, you'll notice what I did there with verse 10. I don't have it on the screen right now. Um, because what was not in the original manuscripts? The punctuation. Not anywhere at all. So you could read verse 10 in one of two ways. Or verse 9 through 10 in one of two ways. You could say, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. Okay, so now it's conditional upon you keeping the word of his perseverance. But what we'll notice is that in the Greek, they almost never start a sentence with a preposition. The word because almost never starts a sentence. And the one time it does, apart from this, it's debatable whether or not that was actually done correctly in terms of the punctuation. Um, so the guy in the 12th century who was doing it on a bumpy carriage ride may have put a period where he should have put a comma, right? So in any case, um, if you look at it in the Greek, it actually makes more sense to start in verse 9 which says that, behold, I will, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, those who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the, out, or the word of my perseverance. That makes the most sense in the Greek, which would then make the next statement a new idea, which would also fit with the pattern of every other letter he's written so far to the seven churches, to the other six churches, where he says, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is to come upon the whole earth. Again, so when we're talking about when we think the rapture is going to take place, there's a cutoff point. He's promising us that we're not subject to the wrath of God in 1 Thessalonians 1, um, that we're 
not destined for that. And in Revelation 3, we're told that not only are we not destined for wrath, which uh, whether you're post-trib, pre-mill, uh, I'm sorry, not pre-mill, a lot of them are pre-mill, but pre-wrath, mid-trib, whatever the case may be, they all think that you're not subject for the actual wrath of God, which they try to either put in the last half of the tribulation, the last five or three-eighths of the tribulational period, whatever the case may be, the last day of the tribulational period. Some of them think it's the literal last 24 hours. No matter what the case is, they think you're not destined for the time of the wrath or for the wrath. What does this actually promise us, though? It promises that I also will keep you from the hour of the testing that is to come upon the whole world. So the time, the time period in which the wrath is going to happen. Book of Revelation, what is the time period of the wrath of God? When when does Jesus open the first seal? Jesus opens the first seal in Revelation chapter 6, and he has the last bull drummed out later. And that is the wrath of God preceding the actual second coming. Everything from the first seal up until the second coming is the wrath of God. And we know that because he is the one orchestrating the things which hit the earth. So when we're sitting here trying to talk about the rapture and we're trying to come to a conclusion about when, what is the rapture, when does it take place, and all these questions, that's what we look at. We look at those scripture verses as they pertain to the idea of the rapture of the church. And we can come to a pretty good idea of what the rapture actually is. What is it? Now that we've read all that, we know our time period. We know when it's going to happen. We know who it's going to pertain. We know that Jesus appears in the air. We know that he is accompanied by a shout for Thessalonians with the voice of an archangel. Those dead in Christ, the people who have died in the church age that are part of the church, will rise first. And then the bride of Christ who still is alive and remain will go with those who have died in Christ and meet the Lord in the air. And where will we be? We will be in the Father's house, per the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, to be with these dwelling places that he's made for us and prepared for us. And this is all going to happen in a moment. So we're going to be looking at the idea of post-tribulational rapture. We're going to be looking at the pre-wrath rapture, the mid-wrath, or mid-trib rapture. Um, But this is the basic gist of why we believe what we believe. So it's incredibly simple. I mean, I made it more complicated by monologuing about it for 45 minutes. Um, Really, it's those three verses that we'd have to go to. um, And we don't have to do any special gymnastics with how we read them. We can just read them and let the word of God speak for themselves. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the promises that you've given us as the church, the promises of a renewal of the entirety of the earth, knowing that you are going to take back the earth eventually in your timing, in your sovereignty, um, and make your kingdom established on this earth. We know that this is unfortunately not going to happen now. We know that it's going to happen after the time of great tribulation, which will come upon the earth. So we thank you for the promises that we are exempt from that, And we ask us to trust you in all of the promises you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.